Welcome to Myth versus Craft. About a year ago, I was browsing through YouTube when a video caught my eye. It appeared to be an interview with an actor, though I don't remember who it was, but I was intrigued by the fact that it was shot in black and white and by the title of the video, which included the name of the program, Off Camera. Within moments, it was obvious that this wasn't a typical celebrity interview. The way in which the host facilitated such an engaging and organic conversation blew me away. If you haven't seen or listened to Off Camera, I highly encourage you to do so. You'll find high-caliber, insightful conversations with artists at the top of their game. I looked up the host shortly after and learned that his name is Sam Jones, and he's also a highly accomplished photographer. His work is amazing, and chances are you've seen many of the portraits he's captured. He's won award after award and photographed A-list celebrities for Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Esquire, GQ, Time, and many more. As if that weren't enough, Sam is also a director, a documentary filmmaker, and a musician. I admire his work and feel fortunate that we had a chance to speak. Here's our conversation. Sam, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to speak with me. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Well, thanks. It's my pleasure. I've been listening to Off Camera for a while, and uh, that's how I learned about your love of motorcycles. I understand that your dad was a racing driver at one point in his life. Was he still racing when you were a kid? Oh, that's funny. Uh, no, he, he wasn't racing when I was a kid, at least not not like he was before I was born. By the time I was born, he had started his own racetrack. His goal was to bring a higher level of drag racing to where I'm from, which is in Fullerton, California. And he helped start a racetrack called Orange County International Raceway, which was uh, sort of in the Irvine area. And he uh, started a racetrack there and got some investors. And uh, so my early years were spent going to that track and and, uh, watching drag racing. Back then, there was a lot of open land, and there was a track called Saddleback that was pretty close to my house. And so between that and the Los Angeles Coliseum having motocross and supercross events, it was just sort of something that was around. And obviously, as a little kid, as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, motorcycles seemed cool and dangerous. And, And then watching, you know, watching guy's race was super interesting. And my dad actually got me a motorcycle, I think when I was 15, and got himself one. And so we would start to go trail riding. And honestly, I think what it was is I was pretty into mod and ska music and punk rock. And a movie had come out called Dance Craze and Quadrophenia had come out. And a lot of kids in the neighborhood were getting scooters like Vespas and Lambrettas and fixing them up, and <laughs> I wanted one of those. And I think my dad thought those scooters were sort of dangerous and silly, and so instead he got me a dirt bike, which, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what the logic there was, but the minute I got a dirt bike, I didn't think much about Vespas again. Speaking of music, I read that early on you thought you'd make a living as a musician. How and when did music become important in your life? Well, making a living is a uh, is maybe a stretch, but <laughs> it's it's what I loved. And back then, I just I don't think I really equated it with making a living. It's just what I wanted to do. And 
I started loving music when I was super young. I think Kiss was my entree into, you know, again, another thing that my parents found dangerous. And, you know, my mom was so against rock and roll and the idea of concerts. And this was in the 70s when I think parents were assuming that all kids were going to go, you know, get on drugs and follow rock bands around the country. And it scared her and, and uh, it excited me. And around the same time, I started learning piano and I started learning to play the guitar. And then I discovered, th you know, Kiss was sort of that, that perfect thing for a little boy. I think, I think when I was in fourth grade, I was Gene Simmons for Halloween. And, <laughs> you know, the idea that it's music and it's costumes and it's breathing fire and all that stuff. And then I, I quickly got into, you know, everything that was exciting at that time, like Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith and the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan. And I had some older cousins that sort of helped me with my education and turned me on to good records. And, uh, and then when punk rock came around, they, they led me down that path and the Clash and the Sex Pistols and all that stuff. And so I just, you know, I remember in second grade, I think I wrote my first song in second grade and I was just hooked. And, and for me, I had an older sister who was really good at piano and she was really good at reading music and she could, she could take almost any piece of music and read it and play it and got good really quick. And for me, uh, reading music was always really like a slow translating chore, but I learned chords and I learned, you know, to write lyrics and and make up songs really quick. And for me, I, I wanted to sit down and improvise and make up songs. And I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to study and, and you know, memorize and, and read music. And so I, I quickly got into that. And then within, within a year or two, I think by fourth or fifth grade, we had little neighborhood bands going and, and kids getting together and playing music. And so it started really, really early. I heard that you, uh, your band toured with Weezer at one point. How far down that path did you go? Well, we didn't tour with Weezer, but we, we were in L.A. sort of around the death of the scene in Los Angeles um, in the early 90s when, you know, the, the metal clubs had sort of turned into a play-to-play -play type of situation. And then there was a bunch of struggling little clubs that were more underground or punk rock or whatever you want to call it. The music industry was sort of in a in flux then, and and you know grunge was sort of there, but in L.A. there was you know that whole idea that you could get major labels to come out and see you play, and that that idea was sort of dying a little bit. And um, but there was a little scene that sort of on the far east it was Al's Bar, and on the far west it was the Music Machine, and bands like That Dog and Wink and Weezer and my band, which at the time was called 99, we played a lot of shows together. So I would say we played seven or eight shows with Weezer, um, but never toured with them. You were a photojournalist at your college newspaper at Cal State Fullerton. What was your actual major? It was communications with a minor in photography or a minor in photojournalism. And at what point did you decide, I mean, when you applied and you decided to go to school there, did you already know that you wanted to pursue photography full-time? I, you know, I didn't. I started at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington, and it was totally the wrong fit for me. But when I was there, I was drawing political cartoons for the newspaper. So I was sort of involved in high school. I was involved in my high school newspaper. And then I did the editorial cartoons 
at Gonzaga. And I always liked journalism. I liked cartooning. I liked film and photography. But it wasn't until I, I think my junior year in college that I took a photojournalism class and sort of thought I had to I had to pick a major. Because at that point, I'd been an English major briefly and an art major briefly. And it just seemed like photojournalism was a way to sort of make a living. You know, at that point, I, I started thinking about, well, I'm going to have to do something that makes a living because I was really serious about being in a band. And, and so the photography sort of allowed me to combine all my passions. I was able to photograph skateboarders because I did a lot of that then too, and bands. And, you know, also I, I sort of enjoyed being in the darkroom and spending all night making prints. And, <laughs> and so all those, all those things kind of came together. I read that Tim Robbins saw some of the work you did for the AP and hired you to be the still photographer for his film, Bob Roberts. Was this as as big a break as I imagine it could be, or or not really? Did things really not change that much? It was a big break in that it got me to see a whole other industry. At the time, I was working for the Associated Press, and the Rodney King beatings had happened I had sort of photographed a lot of the aftermath of the Rodney King beatings, and those pictures went those pictures went into Vanity Fair magazine. Vanity Fair did sort of a big expose on the Los Angeles Police Department and and so they bought some of the pictures for that, and Tim Robbins saw them, and the pictures seemed to be stylistically fitting with the political satire film he was making called Bob Roberts. And the random part came. Uh, one of the producers on the film was good friends with the father of my girlfriend at the time. So when Tim saw those pictures and said, these are the kind of pictures I want for this film, uh, the producer said, well, I happen to know that guy. So that was the <laughs> random thing. So I got a call very late. In fact, they had already hired another still photographer and they were four days into production. And I got this call, and, and it was Tim asking if I could come out and do it. And I sort of jumped at it, because at the time, I was a freelance photographer for the Associated Press, and, and I'd done it for about three or four years, and, and I knew it wasn't going to be my thing long term. I was looking to do other things in photography anyway, and, uh, and I was very enamored with set photography. The best set photography can be some of the best photography of all, like Mary Ellen Mark's picture of Fellini with his bullhorn directing a scene on a cobblestone street in Italy. And, you know, some of these pictures are so, they're the best kind of reportage photojournalistic pictures. But the truth is a lot of photojournalistic work on films is a total slog. And you're sitting around for hours and trying to make a picture in horrible conditions and the crew doesn't want you in the way. But I didn't know any of that. And so I went and had a great time. I went on location and getting, getting sort of that sort of entree into films was really good for my education. I've been reviewing your body of work and it's truly impressive. It's clear that you have an outstanding eye. Uh, you're great at composition. You understand light. But having seen and heard the way in which you listen to and interact with your guests on off-camera, my guess is that your ability to connect with your subjects has been just as important to your success uh, as a photographer. Other than thorough preparation, to what do you attribute your ability to connect with your subjects? You know, I don't know. I think being a photographer involves some sort of technical 
you know, ability, some sort of psychological ability, some sort of compositional and artistic ability. And I think everyone that goes into a field like that has those qualities in different percentages. And those percentages sort of determine the kind of artist you turn out to be and, and the success you have in it. And if, if your ability leans toward the technical, you probably end up a very different kind of artist that, that's very focused on technical difficulty. And for me, I think the draw to photography and the draw to filmmaking and all that stuff is more about the story and the, you know, the, the personalities and the, the characters involved in that. And so I come at it from a more human angle and I don't really have as much of an agenda to turn whatever subject into my world. You know, you see some photographers and they create an entire world of their own. And those photographers are very impressive to me. You know, they're like David LaChapelle or Irving Penn or somebody like that, where it's their world and you step into it. But for me, I always approached it a little bit more like I'm in their world and how can I, how can I best express who that person is inside and sort of find a way to, to show that to the world. And, and I think having that intention makes for a different relationship with your subject. And I don't know, as, as a human being, I think I've always tried to find out what makes other people scared, what makes them excited, what's, what makes them take the path they choose to take. And I, I think being naturally curious about that brings a different relationship when you're working with somebody. Definitely. I've asked a handful of session musicians who've, who've been on the show if they feel like they're typically hired by producers to play and sound like themselves or because the producer just has confidence that this musician is talented and versatile enough to make a strong contribution to, to the record, to the album, regardless of the style or, or vision for it. How often are you given complete creative freedom on a, on a photography assignment as opposed to being asked to contribute to someone else's vision? I've been lucky enough to build a career where oftentimes people are coming to me because they want my creative vision. And, you know, with off camera, I've managed to create a situation for myself where I don't have a client and I'm able to pick someone that I find interesting, that I'm curious about and invite them to come on the show. And then I'm able to talk to them and photograph them and sort of satisfy my curiosity without having any sort of agenda outside of my own interest. And I think that my best work comes when I do that, whether it's making a documentary or directing something or doing off camera or doing a photograph. It's always better when the curiosity and the interest comes from a pure place in me. And obviously I've had many jobs in the past where you have a client, you have somebody who, who has a certain agenda they want filled or a certain vision or whatever. But because I came up in editorial work and did a lot of magazine work, and I came up in sort of the golden age of that when Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair and all these magazines had budgets and sort of let the photographer do what they want to do. I think that I developed a reputation as having ideas and having a certain strong style, even if it's not a style, well, let me say it a different way, having a a point of view. And a lot of times I think that whatever that point of view was, was preferable to asking me to fulfill someone else's vision, which I don't do as well, truthfully, you know, and it goes back, I think, to being an editorial cartoonist and having to come up with an idea that is 
all-encompassing in one frame and training my brain to think in terms of having an idea or having a point of view or, or having a, an opinion about somebody and translating that into something visual. So I've been very lucky that way. And, and I think that off-camera works because there isn't some sort of agenda behind the scenes of somebody else's vision. It, I, I'm allowed to sort of follow my curiosity, and that's, that's when I do my best work. I read a 2009 interview in which you said, I think I will always be stuck on film and anyone who grew up on it will be. Eight years later, do you still feel the same? Well, I mean, I just went and saw Dunkirk, which was shot on film and projected in 70 millimeter. And I, I will say that, that nowadays, I think the conversation's totally irrelevant. I think that there's there's ways to make things look like whatever you want and and that's the beauty of what digital is now is that you have something that that is finally technologically there to manipulate however you want but there is something to the limitations of film that i it's not that i miss but i i certainly can appreciate and understand and i think that that there was a language with film that had more structure to it and there's no structure with digital so you've got to be a lot it comes back to having a point of view you have to have a point of view because digital could look however you want so if you don't have a point of view and a and a strong decision on how that should look then i think that your vision can be a lot less focused you know film sort of sort of started you out with a with a language and and with digital, you have to build that language from scratch with every image you make. And, and so I feel lucky that I came up in film where I understood contrast and color and things like that so that, so that I can have a point of view with digital. And, and Because it can get overwhelming. I think same with recording on tape versus recording on Pro Tools. I think that the, um, the amount of things you can do can sometimes, it can either paralyze an artist or it can unfocus the artist to the point of where it's much harder now, I think, to... We, we have to be so much better at all facets of the process because there's so many more decisions to make. I think music's a great example of that. You know, it used to be that you found a producer and an engineer you liked, and as a band, you went in and, and you kind of knew those rooms. But now, I think every band faces that thing where they come in and they're looking at the session and, and it's like, well, we could try this, and something is quickly thrown on that... Oh, you know, it opens up the number of choices exponentially, and, and you have to be really clear in your vision. And speaking of music, the digital revolution in music lowered the barrier to entry for, for musicians, right? Anyone and everyone can record something, and thus the quantity of music available to the public skyrocketed, while uh, arguably the average quality plummeted. Now that anyone and everyone carries a camera in their pocket, you could argue that something similar has happened to, to photography. Do you think the general public today is more or less capable of discerning and appreciating quality photography? Or do you think nothing's changed, really? Oh, I think everything's changed. I think that there's a saturation of images that we just didn't have. I think even more so than a phone in your pocket, I think Google image search and, and the fact that you have this nonstop Instagram feed going on that we're just inundated with images. And I always think about it in terms of if I take my family on vacation and, you know, you end up in some place, like we were last week, we were in Mammoth and we were looking at Rainbow Falls and 
We were surrounded by about 30 people and they all had their phones out taking the same picture of Rainbow Falls. And I thought, well, that picture already exists for them whenever they want it. And it's one search away. And it's better than the one they're taking. So what is this desire to have the experience to take the photo and have it in your own photo library? I think having the camera in your pocket at all times almost feels like an obligation that, well, I'm here at Rainbow Falls and I, I have my phone in my pocket. Of course, I have to take this picture. And I think photography can start to feel like a chore or an obligation. And I think the same thing about social media. I think to a lot of people, it feels obligatory that you take the picture, you post the picture, you like other people's pictures. But it's almost like a job that everyone's doing without getting paid for it. And I don't know that it all, it's always fun. I mean, I'd be interested to know other, you know, if other people feel the same way, but it's not so much that it's not so much that we have the ability to record music or take photos all the time. It's the distribution. I think for a long time, it, it wasn't that hard to go in your bedroom and make a recording, but the fact that you make the recording and then you could put it out to the world. And same with a photograph. You know, Instagram isn't that different from Spotify and putting your own music up. It's kind of the same thing. And I think that that saturation makes things less important. I think the reason that music feels less important in a lot of ways now is because it's always available and there's too much of it to ever get to. And there's no way to trust any anybody in terms of uh, curation, because it seems like everybody is curating for a price or they're either trying to get followers or they're trying to get attraction in some way. So I feel very lucky that I grew up in an era where if a record came out, you wanted to physically get over to the friend's house who had it so you could listen to it. And it was sort of a magical thing that just gained importance by the fact that it was difficult to do. And that may have been a false construct to start with, but, but it, made, it made the world feel smaller. It made finding things seem more personal. And so it gave, it gave those moments importance. And now I think it's very, very difficult for a piece of art to stand out or to get beyond the fatigue to, to get to an audience. There's a general fatigue about it now that makes it really really hard to seek out something new and to really listen or to really watch. Definitely. And, and most of the guests on the show have been musicians. And we've talked a lot about how listening to music in a way like you just described was something that you sat down and you and you listened to the music and you stared at the album cover. And, and over time, it's become, uh, and, and I, include, I love music and I include myself in this group at times, it just a background activity, a background task. As you are working on something else or, or doing something, just music is playing in the background. And with three clicks, you listen to whatever you want anywhere. And I feel like for a long time, I didn't go to see live music as much as I used to. And I feel like I'm going back to that because I feel like that's nowadays almost the only time that I really truly am focusing on the music and truly just paying attention to it and enjoying it at its fullest. Yeah, for sure. No one ever could anticipate before we actually had it, the idea that you have something in your pocket that, that took the place of so many things, from a clock and a calculator and a barometer and a camera and a, you know, a video camera and stock and email and everything. It's, it's right there, and it's incredibly helpful to the point of, you know, I think in our lives we don't realize 
how much we are sort of a slave to that technology because it's so useful and helpful. And at the same time, it's also habit forming because it can, it can break a few minutes of boredom or it can, you know what I mean? And I think that the downside of all of that is that, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. You go to a buffet with a million choices and and you're going to eat more because there's more stuff there. And, and you're not going to be able to have the skill to, to filter out and say, okay, I'm going to pick those three things and really spend my time with them. You know, it, it just doesn't happen anymore. We never had to be disciplined before to have an attention span. And now we do. And that discipline is really hard to learn. I read a lot on devices, either my phone or my iPad, because, you know, for me, reading at night while my wife sleeps, I can do that without disturbing her with a reading light. It's very convenient when you go on vacation to be able to take 20 books that might be good and you don't have to commit. But I find it's very hard to start reading a book. Like when you sit down with your phone, you go, okay, I'll I'll look at the email and then I'll check Twitter and I'll check Instagram and then I'll look at one thing. But I've sat down to read a book. By the time you get to the book, you've spent 15 minutes not doing it. And I find that requires a lot of discipline to just go to the one place you wanted to go. Or if you pick up your phone just to see what the weather's going to be like in Mammoth tomorrow, but there's a text sitting there, it would be as if everything in your kitchen was in one drawer. <laughs> right. You know, and there's the organization is very strange. And I think that, I think to bring this all back around to off camera and to what I'm doing now, I think the visual aspects of the show and the format of the show, it sort of requires a long attention span, not just to watch it, but to make it and to sit down into that. And I have to say some of my most rewarding hours, hour and a half are when we're taping the show because there's no other distractions and we're in this white room and there's no one in there. And I never thought that that would be such a rare experience. And I think as you get older too, and you have kids and all that stuff, you, you have shorter windows of time to get lost in conversation. Because when I was in my 20s, I think I spent a lot of time on people's couches just talking because that's what you did then. And, and I think the combination of getting older and having all this technology and everyone being so busy and distracted, it's become a more rare thing to, to sit down and really follow a meandering conversation. And, and I think that that's become the most rewarding artistic thing I'm doing, even more so than taking pictures or anything. It's, it's you know, the idea of being really curious and being able to follow that out with no time limit is, is very rewarding. What have you learned or improved upon since you started off camera four years ago? You know, that's a funny question because in some ways I feel like I haven't learned anything. (laughs) And in other ways, I, I mean, I know if I track it and really look at it, I have learned a lot and I have gotten better at it, but I still have the same fears going into each one that I won't find the the thread that really gets the person, you know, excited to talk about something or will run out of things. And, and it's, it's kind of a joke around here because, uh, you know, the show's an hour and we usually end up going at least an hour and a half with each person. And then it just makes the editing harder later. But there's, there's always that fear that it won't work, that this will be the show where it doesn't work and two people don't connect or whatever. But I think what I've learned is that if you really listen and you've really done your homework then once the door closes and the camera goes on, the best thing you could do is forget about all that stuff and just 
and just try to be there present and, and, you know, follow your curiosity. And I think being on camera, it's hard at first because you're thinking about, it's almost like that thing when you, when you wear headphones for the first time, you get up to a microphone, you're, you're distracted by the sound of your own voice and it becomes very difficult to, to stay on, on point. And that's a very hard thing to get away from on camera. And it, it, it takes sort of a, a deliberate, you know, telling yourself, you know, forget about it, just be yourself. And for me, it feels like a lot of shows because I do a lot of research and I do a lot of prep leading up to them. So they're a lot of work and we edit and we, we really work on the shows a lot. But the number of shows I've done, when you compare it to somebody that has a nightly type of talk show, I've got a very little experience compared to someone like that. So I feel like I'm still at the beginning of the experience that I'm gaining from doing it. And, and I don't know how long they'll let me do it or how long <laughs> I get to do it. But obviously, I, I still hope there's a lot of room for improvement. And, and I know that I can get a lot better at it. But when it's going well, I think I can feel it, that the other person has forgotten about the cameras and I've forgotten about the cameras and the, the time goes by quickly and I get excited and I, I throw sort of all my preparation out the window and I just try to keep up with the conversation that I'm more excited by. You know what I mean? And when it's going well, that the time just flies. And you're touching on a lot of topics that, that really interest me and that I find your conversations to be very, like, like your photography, very natural and, and organic. And I, was, I am very curious about how you prepare for, for each conversation. And it's clear that you research your guest's body of work. But in terms of the actual mechanics, do you write specific questions? Do you just take some notes and jot down the topics that you want to touch on? How do you arm yourself or prepare yourself to go into one of these conversations? Well, it's always changing, sort of. I try to approach each person a little differently. And, and I try to find a, a question or a theme or a few questions that can, that can sort of build a theme about what that person might be going through or what they went through to make a piece of art and how that was different for them. And, and oftentimes, the question that I want to find is, is a question that doesn't refer specifically to someone's work. You know, you sit down with a guy like Ron Howard and... Which was a great episode, by the way. I listened to it a couple of weeks ago. Oh, thank you. That was your 100th, right? That was my 100th episode, yeah. That was quite a... Congratulations. It was wonderful. Oh, thank you. But you know, with a guy like that, if you, if you feel an obligation to touch on every part of his career, then you're going to have sort of a greatest hits type of interview that he's done a lot more. So... What I'm looking for is a topic that he doesn't get to talk about much because it's not specifically related to one of his films, but that he thinks about a lot. And so, you know, the goal with a guy like Ron is to, is to understand what he's chewing on or struggling with or, or to find something, a problem that he hasn't quite solved about his own work in a more abstract way that where I give enough, uh, I put enough breadcrumbs down and he picks up on something and, and does the, you know, does the equation for me. And then I, I go, okay, now I can follow that. And it's sort of a hard thing to explain, but, but, you know, I, I would rather, I would rather find something in common with somebody. You know, if I'm interviewing some, someone exactly my age, I just think, well, what, what am I, you know, working on? What, what are the problems that keep coming up for me? Maybe there's a way that we have something in common there. 
And usually the, the people that I'm talking to will fold their work into it because we try to have people on this show that their work means everything to them. And so anything they're, they're personally working on is going to come out in their work anyway. You know, and, and for Ron, I think that there was, you know, my take on him is that for all the ambition that he had, he had to deal with people thinking, you know, a lot of people in this business have to deal with people thinking they should stay in their box or stay right. in their lane. And I think Ron's biggest struggle was that he was so well known as an actor and a child actor and a TV actor and a comedic actor that it made his job harder in some ways. And that was interesting to me because, you know, when I go out and I try to do something like make a documentary or direct a narrative episode of television, people are seeing me as a photographer. And I'm so much more than just a photographer in my head. <laughs> Although, you know, people look at it and they go, okay, he's, he's had a lot of years being a photographer and he's had a lot of success at it. So that's what he is and that's what he can do. And, and I think that everyone feels that way in some point in their lives, you know, that they can feel pigeonholed or, or stuck in the thing that has brought them a little success. And, and a better word for that maybe is misunderstood. I think a lot of people can feel misunderstood. And so with Ron, I felt like that might be a good topic without addressing it directly. You don't want to sit down and say, Hey, Ron, do you feel misunderstood? Cause then he's going to sound like a douchebag if he says yes. But if you can sort of bring it around in a little more organic fashion. You can have a real conversation about that. And if I'm having a real conversation with that about him, then we're connecting on a level that we, you know, obviously we can't connect over success or over money or over kids or age because we're all, we're in different places, but we can connect over that maybe. So it's always looking for a little theme or a little uh, spark of something that, that doesn't feel like it's just the greatest hits of their life. Uh, and you do it so well. Your conversations uh, flow. Uh, they flow well, and you guide them through multiple, often meaty, you know, deep topics. And I, I really admire that in that this, by the way, is, is the most meta conversation I've, I've had with, with anyone because I, I think about a lot of these things when, when I'm trying to prepare for one of these episodes or these conversations. And I often struggle with what you very well described as as the greatest hits approach where I often, you know, will start with childhood and inspiration and go off chronology and then hit on a number of topics. But you do such a good job, at least from, from the listener or the audience perspective, at almost just seamlessly just diving into something and in a very organic way just end up discussing two, three, four just topics that, that the subject appears to be really interested in doing. And I, and I really admire that. So it's really helpful to me to hear, hear you share all of this. Well, I think that's where the research comes in because if you, it can be dangerous to know a bunch of stuff and then feel an obligation to have to hit all the things, you know, but, but if you learn a bunch of things and, you know, for instance, if you really watch these people's films, say if you're, if you're talking to an actor and if you really watch the films, and you just know them, and then something comes up in conversation randomly, you can make a connection. You could say, you know, that reminds me when, when you were in such and such, and it seemed like whatever, right? And that way, it's not like, okay, I did three hours of prep on this one film. I'm going to ask four questions about it. Like, I think that's the trap that I can fall into a lot that I try and, I'm trying not to, is that 
research isn't a linear thing. It, you're not making an outline to create a, you're not making a thesis paper. You're trying to gather random bits of information that might spark questions. I mean, we think about conversations that are natural and comfortable. Those conversations are with people we've known a long time. And some of the best conversations I've had are, are with people I've known forever. But because we already know all that stuff and we have that history, we can have a conversation that presupposes all of that stuff. And when you sit down with someone you don't know at all, you know, my hope is that all my research equates to sort of a false version of having a history with them a little bit to where I can, I can just sort of understand where they are. I mean, sometimes it, it can be tough because you don't want to know so much that the person you're talking to feels like they don't have to tell a story. At the same time, I, I feel like it's cheating if, if you know someone has a great story and you think, well, they should tell that story because an audience would like that story. So I'm going to figure out an organic way to ask them a question that prompts that story. That never really works. You know, it, you can't unknow something once you know it. And, and I really, I mean, I admire people who do less research to tell you the truth. Like, I don't know how true it is, but sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll sort of dig into some of these other people that do this for a living. And, and it seems like they do a lot less work and research. And that sounds really, uh, sounds really romantic <laughs> that, that you could sit down and have the confidence and the, and the, the gall to, to just sit down, not knowing anything and hear stories. And, and I think sometimes that's a great approach, but it's not my approach. And, and I sort of have to do it my own way. And, uh, you know, whatever that comes from, if it comes from some sort of, you know, lack of confidence or whatever, I don't know. But at this point in my life, I do know that for me to sit down in that chair and feel comfortable, I got to get to a certain place. Whether or not I use that information or not, it, it gets me to the chair without, you know, feeling as scared. So that it, my process is sort of developed from those uh, criteria. No, definitely. And I, and I can relate because research and preparation are really my my crutches or my, my key tools. That's really, you know, I don't know if I've really, I think with the exception of one of my guests, I didn't know anyone else before we spoke, including yourself. So research and preparation is what I what I rely on. And I've always thought that preparation could only improve the quality of an interview. And you bring up some ways in which it, it can potentially backfire. But a few days ago, I listened to a, an interview with the writer Susan Orlean. She writes a lot for The New Yorker, and she shared that she purposefully goes into her interviews unprepared. And, and she explained, she said that it's, uh, and I'm quoting, that an authentic meeting requires a certain equality. And she thought that that equality wasn't achievable if the interviewer, if the interviewer goes in knowing much more about the subject than the subject knows about the interviewer. So I meant to ask you, have, have you gone into many, if any, interviews completely unprepared? And if so, how do they turn out? I have not. But, you know, and I don't know who she interviews, but I think that when you sit down with Robert Downey, you can't unknow all the things you know about him. Sure, if I was going to interview some business figure that I, don't, I didn't know anything about, and that would put us on an equal playing field because he doesn't know anything about me or whatever, I understand that approach. But the fact that most of the people that sit down in, in the chair with me are people that we just sort of, we know things about their lives and their careers and their work just because these are the iconic artists making the things that we're gravitating towards. You know what I mean? For me, you got to kind of throw out the idea that it's going to be some authentic conversation between two people that are 
private people that don't know anything about each other, because that's false too. I've been less prepared and more prepared, depending on who I'm going in with. But to me, the preparation I do is actually a form of respect for the work that the artist has done. And that really is what it comes down to, is that if, if someone is going to take their day, someone who's very busy and very accomplished, and they're going to take their day to come over to our studios and, and do this, I, when I see certain things on television and the person asks a really dumb question or, or asks a question that they should clearly know the answer to, they're wasting the person's time that's in the chair. They're wasting the audience's time. You don't want to be the person in the room that, that knows the least. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think, that, I think that for the people being interviewed, it doesn't feel good either. It, it feels like it does feel disrespectful. I, I was talking to one person that I had on the show, and she said she'd gone on a big talk show several times and was asked the same question about where she was from every time. And it just made her feel like, it made her feel like a product. Like, oh, I'm just, I'm just sitting in this chair to, you know, do my entertainment bit to make this show work. And I think that with our show, the idea is that it is the anti version of all, all this, all these other shows. There's no pre-interview. We don't give them any questions. We don't, when they come in, they aren't inundated with requests to do social media or to take other pictures or to sign things or, you know, there's no schmoozing, producing type of vibe to it at all. It's very low key. And so it, it just feels different from the start, I think. So by the time they sit down, they're like, I, I think in their minds, they're like, this can't possibly be on television. I can relax and not <laughs> worry about this. And it's not in a manipulative way. It's just that it's one of those things. I think that we have the level of talent we have walking through the door there's an inclination, I think, by most people when you, when you have four hours with a major celebrity to get as much out of those four hours as you can. And, and that's normal and par for the course, and these people are used to that. But it's so different of an experience when the person doesn't have those cues that they're being manipulated or obligations they feel like they have to do because if not, they're not going to be nice. And, you know, it's just a different feeling. If it, it feels a little more like they're they're a product or they're, they're being objectified. And, and we try to create a different environment for that. And so I guess to bring it all back around, the research part of it is it's just acknowledging that that stuff's out there and, and there could be a more interesting conversation. I mean, for me, there's more equality if, if we start like old friends and, you know, like I had Ron Howard on, I didn't want to make him tell me stories about happy days because I can go read those. You know what I mean? And, and occasionally we get, we get letters from people who will say, you know, hey, I, for 20 minutes, I didn't know what this person was talking about. And they were talking about some obscure film and, and I was out of the conversation because I didn't understand. And my feeling with that is, well, you can just, you can just Google that thing and find out that information really quick and get up to speed with us. So I'd rather not insult the intelligence of having to sort of explain everything we're talking about. You know, I, I feel like we're in a day and age where we should acknowledge that everything is available at our fingertips. This is all very insightful and you, and you preempted a... I was going to ask you about how you go about creating interviews and conversations where your guests all seem very forthcoming and sincere, despite being most, if not all of them, very well-known public figures who are very well-practiced at, at being interviewed. Can you usually tell when a guest is being completely just fully present and genuine 
as opposed to when they're might be creating there they might be really good at creating that impression or maybe rehashing something they might have done before well i don't have an agenda for them to be real and completely authentic and totally forthcoming and completely honest in ways they haven't been on camera before and i think that that's felt in the room i don't have an agenda at all when i'm sitting there with somebody i'm trying to find points of connection to where they feel excited about the place we took the conversation and I'm excited about it. And I think not having that agenda probably helps, but it really is not something I consider. And I feel like it's almost impossible when you're being interviewed to not be a little protective or to not decide what side of your personality is going to share. Just like if you go sit down with a chiropractor and he asks you about your life, you're going to make a decision. You're going to say, well, am I really going to tell him the story about what happened on my vacation and my daughter did this? And, or am I just going to say, yeah, we went rafting. You know what I mean? Like we all make those decisions every day, all the time as, as to what kind of conversation it is or how much we divulge or what side we're going to present or how much effort we're going to put into it. And I feel like everyone does it a little bit differently and decides how much they want to share. And I think we leave a lot on the table, truthfully, in this show. I, I was talking to a, a, a really big director a, a few months ago, and, and he said, oh, man, I love your show, but you could take them so much further. They're there. They're, they're ready to really talk. And, and I think that we do leave a lot on the table. I think that I think there's opportunities that come up where I have someone talking to me and they feel comfortable and they, they feel obligated to be nice. And right then I'm sure I could, I could ask them something or, or take it along a topic that would, that would require more revealing or, or, or put them in that situation. And I honestly, really, I let the show be what it is. I don't feel like I don't feel a need to ramp it up to some level to get something out of somebody. It's not that kind of show. We don't even call it an interview show at all. I mean, everyone uses that term. We've sort of like, we've given up that ship sailed, but I try to, I try to make it feel like a conversation, right. even though it's, it's obviously, you know, it's led by one person. So it's more like an interview, but I try to make it feel like a conversation. If that means we leave something on the table that with a little more prodding could reveal something, that's okay with me. That's, a get, that's another way it's probably different, for, for better or for worse. You um, often ask your guests about their, their work ethic, or more specifically, where it originated. And in reading and preparing for, for this conversation, I read that you had a, an assignment very early in your career of, of, in photography to photograph a parking space. And, and you went all in and you took lights and you asked the security guard to walk in the background and, and you just shot a bunch of film. You know, you did your best and you, and you pushed hard. And, and to me, that's an example of, of what I imagine is tremendous work ethic and attention to detail. Can you pinpoint where that originated in you? One thing I share with most people that come in to do the show is that we either feel lucky to be there or we can't believe we're actually there. And if we don't go above and beyond everybody else and do a little more work, then we probably won't get hired again. And, you know, I talked about this with Sam Elliott. I've talked about it with people who are so good at what they do and so secure in their career. And to a man, everyone will, 
them will will say, I, I walked on this set and I felt like I was going to be fired. Or Sam Elliott said, you know, my dad always told me to do a little more than everybody else. And the reason Sam Elliott's dad probably told him that is because he figured if if he just did the same as everybody else, then then maybe he wouldn't be noticed and wouldn't have enough on his own. And And so... I don't know if that comes a little bit from insecurity or it comes from just being a realist about the world and knowing that, that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people out there that want your job and a lot of people that would love to be doing what you're doing. And so if you don't go the extra mile, you're maybe not going to have that opportunity again. And I know for me, I come from a family where we didn't have a ton of money and we were, we were fine, but I certainly didn't come from a place of privilege or a place where you know, we were surrounded with these amazing families where everyone felt connected and secure by, by their shared place in life or wealth or whatever. And it, it makes you grow up with a little bit of an outsider feeling or a little bit of insecurity that, uh, you know, I'm lucky to have what I have and I better work for it. And my dad was definitely hard on himself that way. And he transferred that philosophy to me. I think my dad, you know, from his early point in trying to get this racetrack built, he knew he didn't bring anything to the table really of value. Like he didn't own land. He didn't have money. He was younger than everybody he was talking to. And so I think that, you know, that's a nice little time capsule of an example of a guy who, who kind of shot for something above his station and managed to pull it off and never stopped to look at what he did bring or the value he did have. Like, his, his value was that he knew more about racing than anybody else, and he had great marketing skills, and he had good relationships with drivers, and he, he knew the sport better than anybody else. But none of those things seemed valuable to him, I think. And so on top of all of those things, he just worked harder than anybody else. And that, that sort of defines his life, you know. And, and by no means did he have any arrogance or any confidence in himself. I think that he would only feel good about things when he worked really, really hard at them. And I grew up with that same combination of, of insecurity and not really believing too much in my abilities, but knowing that, that good things come from sort of putting your head down. And that worth, let me say it again, that work ethic question is always interesting to me because it sort of, it sort of pinpoints the way someone sees themselves and sees their place in the world. And it, and it sort of gives you a window into how confident they are about themselves. And, and what you find that's really heartwarming and inspiring, at least to me, is that most of these artists feel like lucky to be where they are and like it could be taken away from them at any moment and that they really love what they do. And so it forces them to work really hard. And, and that makes for great work. That's why the work is good. It's not because they were born to do it necessarily or because they have found some secret formula. It's because on top of all their abilities is maybe this underwriting fear that those abilities won't be enough. And that extra bit of work is, is what makes them amazing. And I've noticed that, and I've heard you talk about that with so many of your guests who have had tremendous and continued success and over and over, I, I heard that, that their confidence and their belief that they were worthy of everything they attained was often fragile. And I've heard you, you know, relate to that in, in speaking with them. 
has your confidence level over time remained at a at a constant level or do you feel like it's it's changed as you've grown and gained more experience doing what you do? I think you can look at that stuff like a graph, like the app, like the health app on your on your phone where on a daily basis, you know, you can have little ups and downs and a weekly basis you can have higher ups and downs and for me, I think it goes in waves, you know, and, and it usually coincides with how busy I am. And a lot of my definition to myself of success and of the future and what, you know, what my level of security looks like is totally related to my family and knowing that I'm not just, you know, when you're, when you're young and you're an artist, the goal is to sort of do what you love to do and have someone pay you for it. And that is awesome. And then when you, when you get a little success and you start a family, it becomes that it's not awesome. It becomes necessary. And that can mess with you. I think a little bit confidence wise is that, you know, the thing I was shooting for that didn't have any stakes now has a lot of stakes. And so you sort of deal with how, how long does this continue or, what do I have to do next or what, what new thing do I have to come up with so that I can keep doing the thing I love to do, but also the, you know, underlying that there's a need to keep doing it too. So I, I sort of, I sort of fluctuate all the time. And, um, but I, I do find that most of it is psychological gymnastics and it doesn't really have much to do with, with the real world. You know, um, most of the, most of the big growth I've had in my life has come through taking risks and, through following a curious idea or a passion project that I loved and having those things take me, you know, to the next level. And none of that is really changing. I think the funniest conclusion I've come up with lately is that it it seems like an ageless thing. I don't feel any younger or older. I feel like I have the same mindset, which is I want to make things and do things that are really interesting and excite me and have people pay me for them. And, uh, you know, we can all scare ourselves by thinking of the obligations behind those impulses or the, you know, the, the responsibilities and stuff like that. But, but I find that it's just like anything else, I guess. Um, you, you have your internal, your internal path and your external path. And it's important sometimes to realize those two things are very different. You can look at a lot of people that we would consider, complete successes, total, totally secure, life is made, no issues. And when you get to know those people, they have the same fears and insecurities that we do. You know, they may have done 30 amazing jobs in a row and they're, they're afraid the 31st is going to be their last. So their internal, their internal thoughts about their own life are completely different from their external success. And, and that's just, I think, the way the human mind works, you know? There's no, there's no getting around that. I uh, was in my early 20s when I, it seems naive now, but I realized that I wouldn't have time in my life to learn or pursue all of the things that interested me. And to see you going after and excelling at so many things is, is an inspiration. Sam, I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. I'm very grateful for your time and, uh, and I'll continue following your work. Well, thanks, Marco. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's, nice to, it's nice to sort of examine some of these things on a more meta level. And it, it's funny, you think about a lot of this stuff non-verbally, I think, 
when, when you do a job like this and you're the same as me, you got to sit down and research and, and figure out what you're going to talk about. And a lot of those things, until you put words to them, you, you don't even really know where you stand or, you, you know, sometimes for me, putting words to these things helps me figure out what I'm trying to do. So I love conversations like this and I, I appreciate you letting me hash it out a little bit with you. Sam, it was, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Mark. Bye-bye.